You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. New York Times technology editor Steve Lohr goes on the record online. When Google approached me about its concerns that Microsoft's next generation of the browser, Internet Explorer 7, would unfairly steer search traffic to MSN search, I was interested. When Google was eventually willing to put on the record that it expressed those concerns to antitrust authorities in Brussels and Washington, it ended up as a front-page story in the New York Times. And thank you for downloading another episode of On the Record Online the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. If you're a regular listener of the podcast, welcome back. If this is your first time listening to the show, this is the place where we talk to journalists from the mainstream media, bloggers, podcasters, and newsmakers about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business as we know it. My name is Eric Schwartzman. I'm your host. I am the founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation. And I am also personally and professionally fascinated at how technology is changing the way organizations communicate and the way people consume media and information. If you um, are listening to the show uh, through uh, some other means and you'd like to know where to subscribe, you can get it at www.ontherecordpodcast.com. You can also send email to eric at ontherecordpodcast.com. Um, You can send audio files if you like, and we may play them in a future episode of the show. Please, attachments no larger than 5 megabytes. Uh, Today we have a one-on-one interview with... Actually, no. Today we have a keynote uh, that was delivered by Steve Lohr at the Public Relations Society of America's Technical Sections Conference in New York that was held uh, in the end of June 2006. Hope you enjoy it. Towards the end of his presentation, he moves into a Q&A. Unfortunately, the questions are not mic'd, so you'll hear the answers, but not the questions. Um, so now, uh, we are going to play for you the keynote from Steve Lohr after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Uh, I'm Steve Lohr. I'm a uh, technology reporter for the New York Times. Um, and well, I, I like to keep this reasonably freewheeling, but I had 20 or 25 minutes worth of prepared remarks Sort of uh, in the direction I was thought I was told to head, so I'll give it a whirl, and and, uh, and then I'll just open up for questions and uh, you know whatever you'd like to do is any topic you'd like to discuss is fine with me. But what I thought might be of interest to this group would be my perspective on how internet technology, websites, blogs, podcasts, and the like have affected reporting, writing, and news judgments at a place like the New York Times. And Eric Schwartzman who drafted me for this talk, asked that I also include some practical examples for public relations professionals, including how I deal with them or not. I'll try to do some of both. First, let me say a little bit about my perspective. I've covered technology for the Times since the early 1990s. But over the years, I've done a lot of other things. I was a foreign correspondent for the Times uh, for a decade. I missed the 80s in America. As a correspondent based in Tokyo, then Manila, and then London, and I traveled and reported from about 40 countries during that time. The range of topics was very broad, from Britain in the Thatcher years to out with the communist guerrillas, the New People's Army, in the Philippines. I filled in for Bill Sapphire once on the out-language column in the magazine. Even now, I'm asked to make forays on subjects that have little to do with technology. In preparing for this talk, I looked up my stories over the last 15 months or so, much of last summer was taken up covering the political and trade spat that surfaced when Sinook, a Chinese oil company, entered the bidding for a mid-sized American oil producer, Unical. Last fall, I went down to New Orleans for a couple of post-Katrina features, and I spent the last couple of weeks doing an economic and political piece out of the Midwest, piece that's supposed to run this Sunday. 
Um, I'm trotting out my resume only to explain that my perspective is not that of a beat reporter who covers a set list of companies. But in looking over the more than 100 stories I've written over the last 15 months, I have to admit I was struck by how many of them were about three companies in one way or another, IBM, Microsoft, and Google. And we at the Times have these conversations at the start of every year about how we're going to focus more on the, how the technology is used and not be driven so much by vendors. It's a good idea and intention, and it's also true that companies drive news. And the Internet has changed both how we do our jobs and, to some degree, what we cover. The first big effect is that there are so many more sources of information, websites, blogs, podcasts, and so on. That is true in many subject areas. Politics is a classic example. But given the nature of the people who use the web, it's especially true in technology. There are a lot more sources of information, news, commentary, and rumor. And it's all competition in one way or another for readers, for eyeballs, and for influence. One of the good things about the web is the competitive effect. It really forces you to rethink what you do. Where do you really add value? What is your competitive advantage? Where should we focus our efforts? What should we do less of or stop doing altogether? Across the New York Times, we're engaged in that sort of thinking all the time these days. Personally, I think one of the things we should consider eliminating is at the top left-hand side of the front page every day, the motto, all the news that's fit to print. For a long time, it has been sort of a conceit, the notion that any single publication could be truly comprehensive. That motto also evokes another time when most people who read newspapers might generally agree on what was news and what was not. Those days are long past. There's too much information and so many diverse views of what is important and what is not. In looking at the Internet as a source of competition and opportunity for traditional media, what do we see? Well, I think of the Internet as a medium of infinite narrowness. That is its great strength and limitation. As Bruce Perens, one of the pioneers of the open source software movement, once told me, because of the Internet, there are no lone nuts anymore. There are 40 nuts out there just like you. The narrow niche groups and markets are where the Internet really shines. So you get smart people focusing on segments of nanotech, RFID, chip design, genetics, and so on. Also, you can track every daily development and supply commentary on subjects like search, which is what uh, Danny Sullivan's search engine watch John Battelle's search blog do, or on individual companies. I'm thinking of something like Mary Jo uh, Foley's Microsoft Watch. What does that mean for us at a place like the Times? First, we have to decide what all the added competition means for our news coverage. One effect is that we're moving higher up the media food chain. We feel less compulsion to do day-to-day -day incremental stories, product announcements, strategic partnerships, marketing initiatives. That is, the sort of stories at lengths of 400 to 700 words that run inside, inside the business section of our newspaper. If daily stories are not exclusive, they have a harder time getting in than before. Our thinking is that if we can't add value on a daily story, we will either run a wire service piece if we think it's newsworthy, or we skip it. But we do do smaller stuff that has a larger point. Let me mention one good example from last fall. Computer Associates decided to spin off its database software, Ingress, as an open source entity. The investor was a private venture firm in Silicon Valley, headed by a former Oracle executive, and he was recruiting ex-Oracle engineers and executives for Ingress. Financially, this wasn't much of a deal, and they weren't disclosing the spin-off price. Those are two real obstacles to becoming a story. But the head of the venture firm got in touch with me well before they made the announcement, and I talked to John Swainson, the new CEO at Computer Associates, who I had known from his IBM days. And they gave me the story exclusively. But what really made it a story was the broader themes it touched. Open source software and the debate over how far it can go beyond operating systems. The interest of a venture buyout firm in open source as a business model. And the ex-Oracle managers competing with their former boss. It still wasn't much of a story by our standards. It ran at a bit over 700 words on page 8 inside the business section. But more to the point, the story seemed to be one worth spending some time on. The web and the Internet, I think, also force up us at the Times to place a greater emphasis on information discovery instead of information gathering. 
The Times and a handful of other newspapers are powerful news-gathering organizations. On, ma on a major breaking story, we can assign several people, do fresh reporting, and put it in a package for readers in a way that is definitive and readable. But on a day-to-day -day basis, Google News and Yahoo News can gather a wider range of news than the New York Times ever could. Perhaps not as coherently, but software crawlers and bots win hands down for aggregating raw news. Now, what I refer to as information discovery comes in different flavors. On a personal level, I would point to two stories I wrote in the last couple of months. One was a piece for the Week in Review section on news organizations changing the headlines and articles on their websites to get better results from Internet search engines like Google. Higher rankings on search results, of course, bring more readers and more clicks on advertising. But you have to dumb down the headlines for the search crawlers. Humanly clever, funny headline alluding to some reference in popular culture is lost on the software. You have to make it more literal-minded for the literal-minded machines. And even the expert an analysts like John Battelle and Danny Sullivan were not aware of the, of the craft of search engine optimization and that was gaining force in, they're certainly aware of search engine optimization, but not that it was being widely used in newsrooms. And I particularly like the headline on that piece. This boring headline is written for Google. The, this, the second recent example of a, is a, was a lengthy feature on what some academics and industry experts are calling services science. It refers to the effort to apply technology, engineering, and various social sciences in a systematic way to spur innovation and productivity in services, a sector that now represents 80% of our economy. Researchers inside the labs at IBM, HP, Accenture, and elsewhere have been talking about services science for a while. The National Science Foundation this year started a program to fund services science, but we were the first to write about it. To me, that kind of story is more information discovery than news gathering. Okay, now on to the inevitable. What about blogs? Well, I think they're good for columnists. Like academics and consultants, opinion columnists are in the business of developing and owning ideas as well as promoting themselves. We know what Tom Friedman thinks about globalization, and we know what Frank Rich thinks about the Bush administration. They work in the partitioned area of mainstream journalism where their beliefs or biases, depending on your point of view, are licensed and even encouraged. But for reporters, I think the blogosphere is a place to venture into with great care. First, there's the danger of becoming identified with your opinions instead of your stories. If you have to feed a blog four or five times a day, there's a great temptation to make it interesting and fill it up with opinion, conjecture, and hearsay. A lot of unchecked, unedited information that masquerades as fact. The other consideration is time. If you're feeding that blog, you're not out there finding things out. At the times we're experimenting with blogs, so far it's mostly columnists and for special events like the World Cup. We're also experimenting with podcasts. I gather the most popular one is the digital copy of the brief radio broadcast that James Barron does each evening, describing the stories on the front page of the next morning's paper. And, of course, companies are experimenting with podcasts. For example, IBM last year hired Ben Edwards, a former U.S. editor of The Economist, to do podcasts in a series titled The Future of, The Future of Crime, The Future of Healthcare, and so on. Ben interviews an IBM researcher or expert who has, has expertise in a particular subject. I'm not sure how it's going, but it strikes me as an interesting way to use new media to try to make IBM part of the intellectual conversation in fields where the company has large service practices in its services business. Which brings me to what I think is the best that public relations professionals can do for their clients. Try to make them part of the conversation. It's a bigger, more diverse, multimedia conversation than it once was. And in the case of reaching someone like me, there are various means. Story pitches can be useful, but usually the way I use them and find them useful is that something in them relates to something I'm doing or I hope to do. I don't have enough time for my own agenda, let alone yours. That said, do stories and subjects suggested by companies become stories for me? You bet. When Google approached me about its concerns that Microsoft's next generation of the browser, Internet Explorer 7, would unfairly steer search traffic to MSN search, I was interested. When Google was eventually willing to put on the record that it expressed those concerns to antitrust authorities in Brussels and Washington, it ended up as a front-page story in the New York Times last month. When Apple approached me about doing a story and opening its flagship store on Fifth Avenue last month, I, was in, I initially hesitated. 
never he, he hear the end from Apple. I mean, they're always there. And they always think they should be covered. But I did succumb eventually and did it as a profile of Ron Johnson, the former Target executive who heads Apple's retail division, and why Apple has done well in computer retailing while others have failed. It was near the top of our most emailed stories in the paper list for a couple of days. Go figure. But again, the threshold for pitch stories is pretty high. At the times, the stories with the broadest resonance and the most prominently played are those with some consumer or policy dimension. The toughest technology stories to get into the paper are those that deal with some innovation in the plumbing of corporate computing. But there are corporate technologies that have the potential to be competitively disruptive or really enhance productivity. Virtualization is one, and I wrote about VMware, a pioneer in virtualization software, in 2003 when it was a startup and well before EMC had paid $635 million for the company. Now, to get down to the granular detail, I'd rather hear from people by email than phone. I get 150 to, or so emails a day, so needless to say, I don't answer at all. I do visit with visiting, I do uh, meet visiting engineers and executives when they pass through town, if they might be useful down the road on a subject I'm hoping to get to. But I try to limit that to one or two a week, because that sort of thing can just chew up your life. I generally don't schedule things more than 10 days or two weeks in advance. Planning further ahead just tends to be useless. Things just change so much. And let me conclude with a word about something that I think bears watching for people in your profession. A lot of people in public relations and marketing are looking to the web as a buzz generator for their clients. It certainly has that potential as a grassroots medium, fresh ideas, new trends, and new fashions. But it also is a place where it's a lot easier to destroy personal and corporate reputations with half-truths, innuendo, and outright lies. Those distortions can pretty quickly spread and take on the power of received wisdom on the web, if done cleverly and deftly spun. This is called astroturfing, fake grassroots, carefully orchestrated. It's what the Swift Boat crowd did to John Kerry. And I am surprised I ha we haven't seen the same thing happening to products and corporate reputations. To me, it's just waiting to happen in the corporate world. There are tools that act as early warning systems from IBM, Accenture, and Nielsen's Buzzmetrics. But those are just measurement devices. To combat an AstroTurf campaign, you'll need a rapid response team of web-savvy public relations professionals, it seems to me. Maybe it's a good opportunity, the reputational equivalent of computer security and antivirus software. So, any questions? Sure. Um, you mentioned your background in foreign reporting and things like that. I was wondering how you view how technology is changing news is disseminated in countries such as China and other uh, Asian markets. And then secondarily, how does that uh, relate to how U.S. firms are either perceived there or the needs they have to, to reach those audiences? Um, yeah, the whole China question is, you know, it's a big one. We've got a, a researcher who's in jail there and probably never going to get out <laughs> because of what, what he did. Um, but, you know, they also can't control. I mean, it's it, you know the internet. I look at is uh, in this sense as you know what shortwave radio once was from an international standpoint. I mean, that's why the BBC World Service is, and Voice of America did well. But I mean, you know, you go to uh, you know uh, you know uh, Peshawar, you know, in uh, in Pakistan, as I was in the late eighties. Uh, you know, um, you know, BBC World Service in Pashto is uh, you know every little hut has it right. Um, and this, and that's where we are with the internet now. I mean, this is, and I, you know, Nick Kristoff for us has written a lot about this, about, you know, um, you know, unable to, and he covered Tiananmen. So, I mean, un, but being unable, the Chinese authorities sort of unable to control this. I mean, they, you know, they shut down the blogs and they start up and they shut down and they start up. Um, I, I think your, your, que, you know, your question about what it means for American firms in terms of, you know, sort of spreading the word, you know, that's one where sort of, you know, it seems to me, I mean, I haven't deeply thought about this, but enlisting local people to, to, to sort of start up some of this, you know, to engender some of these blogs that, you know, that would appeal to broader audiences and still, uh, you, know, uh, you know, promote the company's products in ways that are indirect. I mean, I think, for example, you know, the, the, the classic of this is, is some of the stuff Procter & Gamble's done in this country 
where you know um, some of their household products things are uh, websites which you know disseminate information about health, personal health, and all. I mean, it's not you know it's not hardcore marketing by any means, but it's sponsored by Procter and Gamble. I mean, those are huge mediums, um, and it's you know. It's all the usual things. It's it's you know it's household food preparation, feminine hygiene, all that kind of stuff. And, and apparently they've you know there's teen sites and and you know the last time I looked at this, not that some you know one of one or two of the sites in particular, you know two or three million, um, you know hits visits a month, which is you know it's, you know it gets to be starts to get to be a, a lot better and more engaging than magazine advertising, for example. But and I you know. Um, I think foreign countries are, sort of, you know, the same thing. I mean, you know, places like China are special. You know, are a special case because you know it is, you know, it's it's a totalitarian government. Um, and you know, Google and Yahoo have found out, you know, plenty about what the problems are there. Um, Kim Belson? Yeah. Obligation? Yes. Is you're saying? <laughs> Not really, is the answer. Um, you know, but, you know, the notoriety doesn't hurt. I mean, you know, what you're after is life after death story, right? I mean, the problem, uh, the problem, uh, you know, I mean, the news value at the front end was not only that this was, you know, an enormous, fast-growing company, right, but also it was, you know, on the telecom side, some of these had sort of the flavor of, you know, like long-term capital did on the financial side. There could be ripple effects, right? You know, all this kind of stuff. So I do think, you know, and I do think the life after death thing, um, is, you know, is an approach. You know, I mean, Ken, to be fair to him, I mean, you know, the last piece he did was from Taiwan. You know, I mean, he's, you know, he's all, there's a lot of kind of pressing news. Um, the one thing, because I, I was thinking about this when I came over here, in a way, I, you know, don't, I, you know, I don't, if I were in your shoes, from a public relations standpoint, I would, you know, the places, the places to look in a lot of ways, in the paths of least resistance are where the economics are on your side. For example, we do that. The Sunday, the Sunday uh, uh, business section does this. The boss column, you know, and I, you know, it's a straight shot. I mean, it's this guy talking. It's unmedi, you know, it's it's edited, but it's you know, and they have to have a good story, right? Something that you know, yada yada. But that one, for example, somebody's got to fill that space all the time. You know, it's not, this isn't a discretionary thing with, geez, you know, now I'm on, now I'm on a two-week project, so for the next two weeks I'm not going to do anything. You know, you, you know, however good it is. I will, I mean, you know, I keep talking to Belson because that is, there's, you know, because that's, that is a perfect, I mean, I don't know who's, you know, who's in charge or how that's been done, but I mean, that's a kind of, you know, um, that's a, you know, that's a pretty good story. I mean, the one thing that is, is you know, I just don't know enough about global crossing these days. How significant they are, or aren't you know? Tell, you know what the role is. You know, I mean, it's still you know. I mean, the life after death thing is not you know is not a you know is not a bad story. Um, okay. Sure. 
Yeah, no, I, it's... And I'll give you an opinion. Um, Eric and I were talking about this beforehand. I, you know, there's one where it's, you know, net neutrality. Whoever came up with the phrase, you know, that defines the issue. So, um, you know, I'm. I, you know, there are people on the other side. If we did this story, I mean, I, I would do it on Dave Farber now. You know, one of the, who takes the other side on this. He's a, a Carnegie Mellon computer science uh, professor who testified against Microsoft in the antitrust trial. Um, and I'm on Dave's list. You know, Farber, I have a separate ma- mailbox for it. It became so, you know, I, my wife, John Markoff, anything from the New York Times, and Farber's IP, interesting people list. It's, you know, there's, it became so inundated for so long, I just partitioned it away from the, you know, among the other things I really want to read away from the general inbox. Um, you know... Google, I mean, you know, Google, I mean, the other side of this, of course, is, you know, Google, Microsoft, and uh, Yahoo, and others, uh, you know, would, don't, you know, want the cost to be borne by the, higher cost to be borne by the consumers. I mean, are we going to, you know, the counter argument is, you know, is that all of our look at regulation of, um, of the internet is basically set hands off. Uh, from Ira Magaziner, right, who gave his, Tried to come up with the original, you know, was seen as a pro-government guy because of his involvement in the healthcare issue with under Hillary. Um, said, you know, hands off, hands off. It's too early to sort of regulate, but you know, so we're going to discriminate against preference, you know, uh, variable pricing, and try to charge some people. You know, it's, uh, you know, you and then you get down to sort of, you know, and because the bandwidth issue is a big one, right? I mean, that's an understandable one if you're telecom, right? I mean, you know, just look at those. Um, um, you know, the consumption rates for like email versus a movie. As more and more of this gets video and all that kind of stuff, right? And, and you know, Google, and we, we have the same problem with Google that the telecoms do. I mean, you know, they get our stuff for free. And they get a chunk of the advertising revenue. You know, which we don't. So, on the other hand, I mean, the you know, a lot of this... It, it seems to me depends on how it's implemented, obviously. I mean, the other hand is you have a small, you know, the, the concerns are, you know, and, and I'm not sure that they aren't, you know, how genuine they are, but I mean, the concerns are you can use it against, right, you can use it against the people you compete with um, if you're a telecom or cable company. And, um, you know, and there will be poli- could be political pressure to discriminate based on pricing, but I don't, I don't, you know, that ought to be. There's where you could have your regulation. Yeah, no, I, no, that's. I mean, this one is is one where you know, um, the whole issue was defined as net neutrality. I mean, it's like motherhood and apple pie. Right? How could you be opposed to net neutrality in the open system and so forth? And I, you know, and you do have, you know, um, you know, you get to Lawrence Lessig and these guys, you know, from Stanford and stuff, I mean, and all of these people are saying, well, you know, well, it's up for the companies to figure out how they're going to do it. It's, you know, it's a complicated issue. I mean, and, I, and I, if, frankly, if I were doing it, I would do it as Farber. I mean, I, and I may. I mean, if I get done with other stuff, because because it's you know this is the voice from the other side. I mean, he is a very unpredictable person to um, you know to take. I, I was actually going to look at it originally when I said before I was off on other things. Is you know who's the most credible economist for the telecoms? Just because it's the interesting contrarian thing. I mean, and of course you know I mean the journals the journals editorial pages hit this pretty hard, but you know they're so predictable that you know um, it doesn't help a lot. Um, so I, you know, it's it's, a, it's it's as they say in computing, it's a very good problem. Anybody else? You have a, a, a big picture comment about Mr. Gates's analysis. Yeah, I think Bill was. I mean, and what he's done this week. I mean, I think you know, the, having. T- you know, he's so engaged in these other issues. Uh, he was through, um, uh, you know, two or three months ago, as meeting the editorial board, and it was, you know, I was, uh, I was there, and um, 
you know, all this, uh, I mean, the short answer is I think, you know, um, you know, it could be a positive thing for, for Microsoft. Um, on the other hand, the template people use is Andy Grove when he, when he did some, a similar thing out of Intel. And, and you talk to the Intel board members and they say, yeah, well, you know, he became a chairman and he wasn't CEO anymore, but, you know, Andy Kibitson, any damn thing he wanted to, right? Um, I think Bill's going to be more distracted. I think he's, you know, again, he came in <coughs> when he uh, talked to us and, and most of it was about, um, you know, the thing that really engaged him was uh, was healthcare and prevention of uh, disease in the third world. And, and I mean, he's really, um, you know, has a real detailed knowledge and a certain kind of, you know, liberating arrogance on these things. I mean, because you can imagine, you know, if I, people were there. Larry Altman was there. He's a doctor at Cornell Medical School, medical writer for us. Uh, um, <clears throat> I met Larry in, in London uh, uh, in the mid '80s, because he was uh, doing AIDS reporting, and he was tapping his old sources. He had been a development uh, doctor in uh, uh, in Africa during the '60s, and this is a time when Africa wasn't letting people in. And you know, there there are two or three people at the table like that across some gates. It doesn't bother him. He holds forth, you know, and, as though he knows, and he has to know at the other side of the transaction, right? Is at the other side of the table are people who have spent 30 and 40 years in the, in the niche fields that he's holding forth on. But boy, he's pretty good. And he's, I, I think, you know, his, and I, you know, I, I, I love the fact that, uh, you know, Buffett, who would not put one farthing into Microsoft, and not, you know, a Graham and Dodd investor, right? Fundamental values, and never understood technology, heck, but he's putting his whole fortune with Bill, you know, and their approach to these kinds of problems. But, um, I, you know, I think Bill has been less engaged for a long time. I mean, to get back to the Microsoft issue. I mean, I think he's been less engaged than he has been for a while. I don't, I don't you know, um, you know, I, I think, you know, it's, it's a different crew of people that have to figure out, you know, how Microsoft is going to, you know, swim across to the other shore to, uh, you know, you know, a huge change potentially at least in the model for how you develop and distribute software. You know, software as a service. So. I'm just curious, what are some blogs that you do on a daily basis? Daily basis. Not just tech related, just anything and everything. Um, I, you know, you know, I go for web sources more than blogs, and also I kind of afford. I mean, if you're in the New York Times newsroom. There's a lot of people that, you know, I was checking Romanesco and this and that. You know, and I, my view is that there are plenty of people who are concerned about journalism. I don't need to spend my... You know what I mean? It's really navel-staring, I think. Um, I, you know... I, 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 daily... And this is, this is, I mean, you know, if I'm on a story, I'll hit, hit the blogs that are in the, in the appropriate area. That's true of, you know, Microsoft. It's true of the search stuff. Um, I'm not aware of anybody who's actually good on IBM. For example, I mean, across because it's so diverse. Um, um, but I don't, you know, and I, you know, there's bunches of stuff that I look at. I mean, the economics, you know, National Economic Bureau of Economic uh, Research Working Papers is a great site. It's not a blog, um, but I, you know, I'm more interested in information than, um, uh, you know, than commentary. So I don't, you know, I don't. Uh, um, you know, I'm not a, a committed daily blog reader. Uh, would you talk for a minute about uh, Friedman's World is Flat? Do you, do you think we're losing the, the brain drain over to China and India? Do you think we're becoming less competitive? Do you, do you buy into that argument? Um, I've written a lot about outsourcing. Um, yes, in certain areas, sure. I mean, I do think, you know, if, you know, you can take whatever, you know, the statistics you want to take as a cut on this, right? Um, kind of determine where you come out. I mean, the, the issue is not the current numbers. I mean, even there's a Forrester report that got a lot of attention, about 3.5 million jobs, you know, over the course of X, Y. Well, think, you know, yeah, but we got a, you know, we got a job market of 130 million. I mean, those, that number, and that's current. I mean, we lose more in a month. In the nature of the American economy, we we create and destroy about three or four million jobs a month. I mean, it's not you know that's not sort of you know 
the aggregate loss at this stage is not the issue. With the issue, really, that people are concerned about is the trajectory. You know, in this sense that, um, uh, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're losing things. And I, I do think, you know, particularly on the, on the immigration, I mean, one of the problems that, like, companies that have promoted this, and Craig Barrett of Intel was a big one, and his, his classic thing was, you know, you take, um, uh, you know, this is not like Japan. You know, we had, uh, uh, and I was in Japan in the early 80s when we were concerned about Japan and we had a semiconductor agreement and all that sort of thing. And, you know, um, and, you know, we had uh, 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 Fritz Mondale saying our kids will be reduced to uh, sweeping up around the Japanese computers and uh, uh, flipping hamburgers. You know, and that's, you know, that has a certain feel now that's sort of similar. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's you know, it, and the counter-argument here that a guy like Barrett will make, well, yeah, but it's totally different this time. Japan was a country of total of 120 million, so you're talking about a workforce that actually competes of, you know, whatever it is, 10, 20 million. You take, you know, okay, take China, India, Eastern Europe, say 8, 90% of them, um, you know, are peasants. Only 10% compete, that's still 250 million. You know, it's different this time. And they're educating their kids and this and that and the next thing. I, I You know, I think this is, you know... Um, you know, adds more fuel to the fire to what we've had to do for a long time, which is you got to find a way to move further up that you know that economic food chain. I do, you know, and there's there's a lot of research that's been done on you know, kind of the future of work and the kinds of things that go and the kinds of things that stay. I mean, I do, you know, it is true that certain kinds of you know, um, uh, you know, anything that can be reduced to rules, and that includes some fairly high tech jobs like certain kinds of computer programming for example, um, are for grabs. I mean, I do, I to get, I mean, Tom's book, uh, you know, actually finally read it, I mean, you know, astounds me in some of the things that he did. It's the nature of this, I mean, his sources would be cutting and pasting, right? So, and he had, he had a few people correct, Craig Monday on the tech side of Microsoft and Paul Romer on the economic side of Stanford. That stuff, I mean, astounds me in the superficiality of it in some cases. But I, that said, I think he's got all the big points right. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, you know, um, you know, I, I, you know, sure, it's a threat. I mean, the dimensions of it still aren't clear. And I mean, our, you know, our problems are, you know, K through 12 education and stuff like that. You know. Um. Yeah, I mean, we have, I mean, I've written about both of those, actually. Um, um, yeah, we have so many other issues with China. It's part of a constellation of things, right? I mean, so there's, whether trade actually, you know, is at the top of that list is going to depend on what else happens. And I think how it plays out will, um, you know, will depend on how the other, the security and other kind of issues are, are you know, are important. I, you know, I do think that um, on the standard setting side of it, we're kind of in for tough, you know, we're in for um, some debates here. I mean, big comp- big countries with large markets set standards. Britain did in the 19th century. We did in the 20th. Um, and China wants to escape this, you know, what it, you know, sort of that, you know, uh, being an offshore manufacturing producer for, you know, Japanese and American technology. I mean, it really, and standards are part of the way, um, you know, you do that. So I think, I think we're, I, you know, I, you know, a trade war to me is, you know, is a, is a phrase that, I mean, I think they're going to be, you know, dust-ups on individual cases, and that's part of the sort of the growing pains we see with, you know, us you know, ceding more economic power to China inevitably in a way. I mean, I, you know, the, the issue is kind of bring them to the table, but I, you know, in dealing with China, and I, you know, obviously I'm not over there, but I mean, there's this whole kind of issue, are, you know, are you dealing with the greater Shanghai Council? Are you dealing with the federal government? Who really has the power? It's, it's very kind of balkanized. So there's a lot of, you know, kind of back and forth on that. I, I just, um, I think we're for, you know, 
a fair bit of friction with China just because um, they need us and we need them. You know. Um, you know, all the time. I mean, I, doing this, you know, reading the search engine books, I mean, I, I, and see, dealing with, they talk about people, you know, like do three searches a day as average. It's just, I, you know, we're on it all the time. It's just that, you know, you know, it isn't like, I mean, it's, it's f- for locating the source you know you want as opposed to, you know, the old Ask Jeeves where in theory where you could like type in a question what is the meaning of life? You know, right? You, get, right, you, know, um, you know, it doesn't work. You know, text recognition isn't that good. I mean, it's one of the things that kind of, you know, Google's honest about, right? You know, you put in the text. But it's, you know, it's just an absolutely invaluable tool. I mean, at, you know, in, in terms of, you know, you want to get the telephone number for that university professor or do, you know, whatever. Or if you're on a, on a, on a subject where, you know, you know, it's deadline time. It's thrown at you, and you don't quite know. If, you know, you'll do. I don't know. Um, you know, do a couple keywords and see what you know, sort of like academics or who else, right? Maybe consultants kind of come up. I mean, you, that that'll happen, but I think a lot less than simply, um, you know, background checking. You know, facts. What happened? You know, you need that thing for. You know, when was that deal? Between the two companies that you need for the one sentence in the story, bang bang, and you you know. You know, you have it. I mean, it's a great tool for, for you know, that fact-checking uh, kind of uh, information finding. I, I don't, you know, um, it, it isn't, you know, it, it isn't where stories start out, typically. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, this is, you know, it is part of an evolution. I mean, when I started at the New York Times, before I went over, every time you did a feature story, right, there's a thing called the morgue which is where I now sit, right? And there were, you know, dozens of people clipping, right? Clipping newspapers, magazines, profiles from the New Yorker. I mean, that's where, you know, you came back with this thing and I cut in manila envelope and yada, yada, yada. You know, I... Everything is online now. I mean, so that all our kind of resources are, you know, are there. Um, but Eric, I'm not sure, you know, I'm really answering your question. I, you know, is, is your question that, you know, um, you know, search is where we kind of, you know, you go to find all kinds of stuff, and it's abs- and it is crucial as to what goes in the top of that list. Um, it 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 is like this this business of you know search engine optimization, which you know Google and others like to say, well, geez, you know, it just <coughs> you know gaming the system shouldn't work, um, but it does. I mean, we have changed, and uh, the New York Times acquired this thing about dot com, and. Uh, um, they made their way with search engine optimization. And their guy is, uh, we have, you know, our, where we've come out on the rankings on Google over the last year because of changes we've made because of search engine optimization. Huge. And now, that's, you know, that's going to be an increasingly kind of important thing. And I, and I, there, the, this, this, the search engine guys are kind of in, it reminds me of, you know, the SAT scores. You know, an SAT test that kids take to get into college. You know, when I, you know, back in ancient times, when I took those tests, right, there was none of this preparation, kind of, you know, and it, all this guy, you know, you show, I showed up after a basketball game and took the test, right, and that was sort of it. Now, you know, you're just enormously disadvantaged if you haven't done all kinds of prep, and, you know, preparation stuff. And I, I think the same is true of, you know, um, uh, you know, search engine optimization. I mean, that is that particularly larger companies that are able to afford all this. And, you know, Madison Avenue is just full of search engine optimization, you know, specialists now that have hired quants and so forth. I mean, it's a huge part of e-commerce. Um, and, it, it, you know, it changes the system. Um, just as a follow-up, do you find that um, there's an uneven advantage or do you find that the representation of firms on the internet through search is not necessarily equivalent with the size of those firms on the stock market? Yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, because it, it, you know, it's. I mean, the key is is 
you know, here's where the blogs really come in because it's, you know, this page rank algorithm. And so you, you know, you, um, the more links from, you know, uh, uh, sites and places that are seen as, you know, influential, you know, tip up the balance. So that's where, um, uh, you know, this, you know, properly done, you can, you know, the small guys can really benefit enormously from that in a way that I'm, and I'm not, you know, I mean, you, you asked earlier when we were out in the, on the hall, Eric, about, um, you know, kind of websites for corporate websites and stuff. I mean, I, I you know, I kind of deal in the world where, um, you know, most of them are pretty darn good. I mean, you know, Microsoft does a terrific job. I mean, a lot of the, their speeches are there, their, their uh, 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 you know, the transcripts of uh, the Q&As, um, uh, you know, IBM does a good job. You know, Intel, I mean, these are guys who kind of naturally have this tendency and feel sort of humiliated if they didn't. I mean, it, what's more interesting to me, and I, you know, we probably should do more on this, frankly, is, you know, like some of these com- com- uh, consumer product companies uh, that have done a terrific job and have built up sort of alternative marketing channels, um, you know, and been smart about it. I mean, again, I think Procter & Gamble is a classic example of that. Um, and, if you t- and if you talk to, you know, and how you use it is so critical. I mean, it's another thing about sort of, you know, search and everything kind of moving there to marketing. I can assure you that no large portion of, uh, of, of Apple's uh, advertising budget is, uh, is, goes to keywords in search. You don't move the Richter scale of popular culture. You don't create brands, you know, with search. Um, and, you know, you, I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of, I mean, the guy's chief marketing officer, Chrysler, who I talked to. I mean, they're really smart people about, you know, where it fits in and where it doesn't. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, this is one, I mean, you can, you know, this is the sort of, what you're talking about is, is a way to sort of, you know, get a leg up and arbitrage uh, opportunities for, because I think it's still pretty wide open, if, you know, um, for smaller companies to, you know, be much further up in, in, the, in the rankings and therefore get more attention. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, Carnegie Mellon is a classic. I mean, you know, there's, um, and you, sure, sure. And also, you know, we, you know, Harvard and Stanford are pretty good, but, you know, we should, it's one of these things like people cover the markets or something, you know, you should diversify your sources. I mean, unquestionably. It's just, um, um, and that's another good place where search comes up. We're looking for an academic expert in something. I mean, you know, some woman who's, you know, for a weekend review piece a long time, you know, some woman at uh, the University of Wisconsin who's a real expert in, you know, uh, technology and history, for example. And it, you know, and then you look for the credentials. I mean, you know, she won an NSF grant. I mean, this is the kind of thing it's really easy to search to see, you know, sort of if they're kind of third-party verification of, of, uh, of their credibility. So, it's, you know, it's easier to find people like that. I would hope that we do is the short answer to your question. I'm not sure, you know, um, you know, depend. I, I think in the in you know in the sciences and in technology, we'll do that a lot more than we do in politics and uh, and the social sciences. I mean, when somebody's asked to do a piece that uh, uh, for the style section, where we need an expert, you know, to kind of weigh in for the fourth paragraph, say, you know, this is an important trend, yada yada yada, right, you know. Uh, whether whether the story needs it or not, um, I think there's much more kind of proclivity to try to go to you know one of the obvious name brands. The other thing that's happened actually on the academic side is worldwide. I mean, it's a lot easier to reach people from you know Australian stuff. Uh, where do you see this going? <coughs> Media companies are beginning to look much more like technology companies, and technology companies are looking more like News Corp, yourselves. Where is this all heading to? What will the, the media company maybe 10 years from now look like? Well, very good question. Um, 
I, mean, I think there are different answers. I mean, I, you know, Google's a media company because that's where it makes its money. It, it was, you know, it's all this whole issue of you know, kind of adding value. It's a great thing, but you got to monetize it. I mean, and you know, plenty of people over the, you know, it's like the PC makers. You know, um, IBM and Compaq had a lot of value over the years in the PC industry, but you know, it was Microsoft and Intel that made the money. Um, I don't see. I don't think Google views itself at least in any conventional sense, you know, as a media company, as much as, you know, they're chewing advertising like crazy, right? I mean, whereas, whereas Yahoo does. Yahoo's a different, you know, um, uh, is, a, is a somewhat different animal. And then I think is much more kind of a, you know, um, when people like Disney or... Um, you know, are thinking about how, what their future is going to look like and what the mix is going to be, right? Techno- how much technology is going to be really important to them or not. Um, I think, you know, Yahoo has more of that kind of human-mediated flavor to it. Um, um, you know, I, I mean, the Google bet is that, you know, is that, is that software will do it. And I, that, you know, maybe I'm, you know, that doesn't feel like that much of a media company to me. Um, you know, Microsoft tried this in the 90s, right? I mean, huge investments in Baton Rouge still has the legacy. But they decided they were competing too much with their, with their customers and they were really a software company. So they kind of, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Bill was on the cover of Wired, you know, years ago. was, you know, a media mogul and so, you know, I, that's, that's all been forgotten, right? Um, I, I don't... Um, Alternative forms of distribution and new kinds of media. And then, I mean, the other, I think the real kind of question is how much is sort of participative media, MySpace, that kind of thing, um, you know, becomes kind of, you know, more and more sort of the center of gravity and therefore advertising and stuff. Um, and that's, you know, it's a lot of technologies involved, I'm, you know, uh, but it's, it, you know, it's a different kind of thing than having professionals create stuff. And, I, I, you know, that, I mean, I basic question is how much, you know, um, the money moves away from that, you know, that mode and to, to the sort of, you know, participatory and everybody doing it kind of thing. So. I have a follow-up question about uh, you and your journalist colleagues who are not columnists. How comfortable are you giving your opinions and blogs and, you know, really taking off what has traditionally been your objective, you don't let your opinion show, you just write the story, facts only. How comfortable are most of you and your colleagues uh, now being asked to be in the community and voicing opinions? Yeah, and we're actually debating this too. I mean, th- there is pressure on us to block at times. I mean, it's part of a big debate. I mean, I kind of glanced over <laughs> this talk. Um, um, uh, and, and I think, you know, it's a pretty uncomfortable thing. I mean, you know, the other side of this is, you know, it's all just a conceit. I mean, come on, you know, if you've done something for a while, you have a point of view, let's hear it. Um, or, you know, or the sort of the sense that, that you know, but, but we haven't done what the English newspapers have, for example. I mean, if you read the Daily Telegraph, you're a Shire story. If you read, you know, the Times... The Guardian is left of center. I mean, you know, you, the, the newspaper that you carry, right, um, is, uh, you know, describes your political mindset and worldview, and uh, the reporters are expected to reflect that. You know, you're speaking to members of your tribe. You know, we have made that concession. And I'm, you know, reluctant. I mean, I, it, it makes me very uncomfortable to try to do so. But... Um, but the blogs kind of take you in that direction, um, and I, I don't, um, you know. I, so I see. I would have no trouble with <coughs> again. Uh, uh, Barnaby Feeders, one of guys, he really likes nanotech. He's kind of on other things. If you have a particular passion and want to dive down into a, you know, an area of expertise, um, Roger Cohn, who's a foreign policy guy for us, and now works for the IHT, is you know, he's gone nuts on this. He's a huge, he's a he's a soccer nut, right? Um, so he's, you know, he's a World Cup, you know, he's all over, right? Um, but the problem is, is, is doing it with sort of, a, you know, with a left hand. I mean, I think it, blogs, 
you ought to, they shouldn't be once every two weeks kind of thing. This is trouble a lot of these corporate blogs that executives do. You know, they'll put up something every week or, you know, once a week or something like that. I mean, if you're going to blog, you got to blog. And it should be, you know, it should be a number of times a day. Um, and one of the guys who's really facing pressure for us to blog is John Markoff um, in, uh, in Silicon Valley, and he's resisted it so far just for this reason. I mean, that is to say, it is, you know, to do it right is, you know, is a full-time job. I mean, and you can say, no, no, it's going to be more factual. You know, it's just going to be like links. And this is what John, this is John's fallback, by the way, which hadn't started yet. But it'll be kind of an aggregator thing, you know, like homepage, you know, where I don't, you know, <coughs> um, and we'll, we'll get a, a young person, you know, we'll get, a, you know, a non-New York Times hires contract kid to, you know, do a lot of the back. This is the way Andrew Sorkin, who does our deal book uh, thing for, what's on Wall Street, he, has a, he does a blog for us. I mean, that's, you know, and he's got, uh, he goes through a series of uh, young people who do, you know, some of the spade work for him, right? On it. It's more a set of links right around a subject. <clears throat> that would be more appealing. I mean, that, then you kind of, you know, you can get more in. And I do think, I, there are things that I think I don't think of as blogs. I mean, I, David Kirkpatrick at Fortune does website stories that never, you know, nowhere near are going to be, you know, they're much more conversational and stuff, as opposed to, you know, like getting into the magazine six times a year. See, I think that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, you know, in the daily sweatshop, you know, how much more blood are you going to get from the stone? And I, you know, I just, that's where, you know, and it all, you know, and, and we're under great pressure. I mean, good, some of it's really good pressure. I mean, for example, we're under a lot of pressure to be multimedia. I mean, this Sunday story, I will do what we call, you know, a slideshow, which is basically like, like a radio three minutes for a series of photos, only a few of which will be in the, you know, in the paper. Um, Using tape recorders, I mean, much more full transcripts of interviews you had with somebody's prominent, if it's an executive or something, right? I mean, I used to, I, you know, for me, I was, you know, tape recorders were something, because I take notes pretty fast, tape recorders were something I bought for prime ministerial interviews. Bob Hawke, Margaret Thatcher, you know, uh, Australia Barbara, Margaret Thatcher, you know, um, David Long in New Zealand, I, I did, but only barely. But I mean, and then we'd throw them out, you know? This is now with the digital stuff, we're going to do this much, much more. And, and I think that's all a good thing. I mean, the, and you, you do, I think corporations have an issue with this. I mean, they say, geez, you know, we, we want our executive unmediated. Okay. Uh, you've ever seen a raw transcript of Sam Palmasano? You know, you're going to find out, one of the things, you know, that journalists do is sort of distill the nuggets of what these people say to make them look more intellectually coherent <laughs> in Congress. And that's, I don't, I, you know, Sam's a brilliant guy and all that kind of, he, you know, like all of us, I mean, he's more discursive, right? Some people speak in complete sentences, others don't. You know, that's a branding question too for a company. How much of, you know, and, you know, you have somebody like, um, you know, they do it with uh, Jonathan Schwartz's blog, Sun Microsystems. I mean, Schwartz is a different kind of guy. You know, he's a, and they're using that as an effort, you know, to do anything to kind of get more attention for Sun, but, you know, that, you know, to try to do that kind of... I mean, those can be real opportunities if you had the right person. But um, I, the blogging thing, you know, as it veers toward sort of opinion and kind of, you know, even the facts that you can't check, you know. And then there's a the litigation side. <laughs> I mean, isn't there? I mean, you know... So New York, you know, you put a New York Times site, right? It links to all, you know. I, I'm not sure, and I haven't really asked about it, but, I, you know, the, the legal side of whether, you know, we bear any responsibility for stuff that's linked to. I mean, it's almost like, for the you know, we've tried, you know, episodically over the years, they've tried to do a gossip column, right? Yeah, it's just not, you know. It's not, you know, it doesn't feel right, you know. They should do Sudoku. They shouldn't do, you know, gossip. No, so. <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.